All right. Woo. Wow. There we go. All right. Well, welcome to Journey. We're so glad you guys are with us. You are the best because you came. Because I'll be honest, um, I got out when it was seven o'clock this morning and not raining. And so uh, it's a lovely day. And so thank you guys for coming and dealing with our parking lot and for being here. It's also fall break, which means we have a lot of people that are traveling and taking trips at the beach, and we all secretly resent them right now. And uh, so at least I do. And so that is going on. So we're so glad you guys are here today spending time with us. If you're new, we're so glad you guys are with us. If you haven't been here in a while, we're glad that you're with us. Um, and so a couple things. Uh, this Thursday was our annual Fall Fest. I say annual, we've only done it twice. So it's going to be annual though. But uh, it was a huge success. Several thousand people again, tons of vendors, food trucks. And so we just want to thank our volunteers that helped put that on. If you miss it, you missed out. I mean, we literally um, take over this whole part of the city, like, I mean, this whole end of the town, people hate us because the traffic gets miserable, but we want them to come. That's the goal is like, you just pull in and you can just come to our fall festival. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, next week also, you guys, there's not a lot of energy in this room right now. And so we need to bring it up just a little bit because I, there we go. Uh, there was a big football game last night. I don't know if you guys watch. Yeah. And so, well, some of you, yeah, for the other team, yeah, not as big. So, uh, so anyway, so next Sunday is um, our 11th anniversary birthday. I don't really know what to call it because we weren't birthed, but uh, so we're turning 11 next week. Uh, we're going to have a big party for the kids, so bring your kids. There's going to be all kinds of stuff in them. Uh, we want to see you guys. If you haven't been here, if you're watching online, we'd love to have you back uh, next week for our 11th anniversary. Last year was just a wash because of COVID, um, and so we're going to celebrate uh, next week. It's also going to be a baptism Sunday, which means if you've been thinking about baptism or have any questions about baptism, uh, we would love to talk with you about that this week and baptize some people next Sunday to celebrate um, our 11th anniversary birthday, whatever we're going to call it. And so we are super excited. Uh, there'll be cupcakes and balloons and confetti and all that stuff that April's planning. So uh, so we are continuing on this series. And so if you haven't been here, we're building upon kind of this idea of what it means to have this greater faith and understanding of God and, and how he relates to us in our life. And so last week we ended with this tension point, if you missed it, and you can go back and listen to the messages, that essentially Paul is in this place, and Paul's one of the early leaders of the church, but he has this problem, as we all have problems in life, and he wants this problem resolved, as we all want our problems resolved in life. But the answer he gets from God is no, it's not going to be resolved which is not the answer that you want, right? I mean, none of us want God to be like, well, no, that's not really gonna happen. And he ends by saying, my, my grace is sufficient. My strength is all that you need. And so we looked at this verse. It's kind of this popular verse. And it says, he that is in me is greater than, and it ends by that he is in the world. But the question I pose to you guys is, he that is in me is greater than what? What do you need in your life for Jesus to be greater than? Like we all have struggles, we all have issues, we all have seasons of life that are really tough, that are really hard, we all have things that are going to happen to us. I mean, if you think your life has been easy, and some of our lives have been easy, I mean, just wait. There's going to come a season at some point when things get difficult and things get murky and things get hard. And what do we do in those times? Where do we turn to? Do we really believe that Jesus is actually greater than even those things? And now all of this centers around the question of, of our faith. So, so you know, it requires faith to believe 
in these things, to hope in these things. And so kind of what I want to do today is just talk a little bit about faith as we continue on in this idea of greater. Now, it's naive for me to think that I can explain the importance and kind of an understanding of faith in 30 minutes, but we're going to give it our best shot today. That's why I needed some energy in the room, all right? And so we're going to start with the traditional place, which is Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews is a book in the New Testament. We're not sure who wrote it, but he or she was brilliant. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, Now, faith is confidence. So what it's saying is this is a confidence thing. This is not a shot in the dark. There's some confidence. There's some legs behind this. And what we hope for, an assurance of what we do not see. Now, a lot of people get hung up on this, what we do not see when it comes to faith, because they're like, and we're going to explain more of this in a minute. But but what they're saying is we literally ourselves didn't see it. Because what follows this idea is a series of, of ideas and stories and things that other people saw. And so what they're saying is, we didn't see it. Just like everybody in this room, you have not seen a literal resurrected Jesus. But your faith and your confidence is that someone did, and they wrote about it, and they documented it. Does that make sense? And so we're not saying, oh, there's no evidence at all. There's no, you know, it's no. Yes, there was something. We just haven't seen all of it. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And again, Paul's playing on some, some language and some pictures here, and he's what saying, listen, when the world was created, however it was created, and you should listen to our divinely uninspired podcast if you want to know my opinions on things, but, but however it was created, there wasn't anybody like documenting it. Does, does that make sense? There was nobody at the beginning of creation there with like a pen and paper or like drawing pictures of what was going on. We believe that God created out of this command for the universe to be formed, however that was. So again, he's painting on this idea that that we have faith in this thing that actually happened. We just didn't actually see it. But something happened that kind of set this into being. And then what he does is he's going to give a bunch of stories, the, the popular stories, the stories that we teach your kids back in kids' church, the stories that if you grew up in VBS or church that you know of, I mean, all the big stories of the Old Testament, the, the giants of faith, I mean, these are the stories that he's going to tell in this next little bit, he or she that wrote this. And so what they're saying is, okay, yeah, we haven't seen this, but our faith is built upon all of these layers of people and their lives and things that happen to them that give us confidence in God. And then he says this, verse 32, and I'm going to read it to you, and you can look this up later. It's Hebrews chapter 11. You should read this chapter if you've never read it before. It's an amazing chapter. He says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all of the prophets. So there's a lot of stories. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. Now, if that's what faith is, that I can overthrow kingdoms and shut the mouths of lions and escape the death of the, the sword, sign me up, right? I mean, that sounds awesome. And what most of us picture is that's what we think faith is. We think that faith is often this adventure where these things happen. What you have to understand is all of these stories were were, were unusual. But but there are these stories that happen where God stepped in and these things happen that we can't explain. I mean, but this is what we want. We want this mountaintop faith. This is the faith we want to sign up for. 
Who wouldn't? But the author doesn't stop there. They say, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. I mean, this is true in history. We see men and women in the first century that basically they're told if they recant their faith in Jesus that their lives will be saved and they refuse to do so because of what they saw and experienced. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, which is the idea they had to hide in plain sight because of who they were and what they believed, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. Now, let me ask you, how many of us are signing up for that version of faith? None of us. And yet that's a real part of it, right? I mean, and some of us in our life will experience both sides of that. Some of us in life, we will experience the mountaintop highs of faith but then we'll also experience the valleys and the hardships. And both of these things are part of the story of faith. Now, if I'm going to be honest, and I hope that I can be with you guys, see, when I'm on the mountaintop, when I'm overthrowing the kingdom and experiencing death by the sword, which I haven't experienced either one of those things, but it would be cool, um, I got to believe that I'm going to have some pretty awesome faith. But when I'm in the valley... And when I feel like I'm being persecuted and oppressed and I feel like things aren't going the way that I hoped they would or what I signed up for, what happens in faith sometimes is it leads to doubt. It leads to a wrestling with our faith. It leads to questions of what's going on and can God be trusted? And, and so what happens, we're going to see next week with this idea, but but. But for now, what I want to do is talk about this idea of faith. And I think that we have to understand is that there's going to be highs and lows in our seasons of faith, and that's okay. The other thing that we have to understand is this, is that doubt does not disqualify you from faith. In fact, Tim Keller, who's smarter than all of us combined probably in this room, he says this. He says, a faith without some doubt is like a body without antibodies. And I know that's a trigger word right now, so just pretend like it's not in there, Okay. <laughs> People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy, which we're all going to have at some point, or the probing questions of a smart skeptic, which is where your kid's faith is, just so you know. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she or he failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Did you know that doubt can often do things for you spiritually that nothing else can do? That when you have these seasons where you're doubt and you're wrestling and you overcome this and you work through these things or you start to wrestle with this and it leaves you in a different place. For example, many of you guys know kind of my story of faith. Um, one of the things that happened to me just a few years ago was I just kind of went blank slate and just started all over. And I went through this experience where it was frightening and it was painful and it was scary at times. But, but, but here's what happened is I had to figure out for myself who God was and what he was like. There's this, there's this, question, this quote that it's in my office. It's been there for three years at the top of my whiteboard. And it says this, it comes from Peter Enns. It says this, when the dust clears and in the quiet of your own heart, what kind of God do you believe in and why? Not what I say you should believe in, 
not with the latest book you picked up at the bookstore because there's millions of them. But in your heart, based on your experience, based on your understanding, what kind of God do you believe in and why? Now, now let's talk about faith because that's what we're getting to. And so the question with faith comes at this. Well, what is faith? So if you look it up in the dictionary, it says this. Faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something which I think is a bad definition, if I'm being honest. The other one that comes up is strong belief in God or in doctrines of religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof, which again, is not a good definition, right? Because what they're saying is spiritual apprehension is basically, apprehension is the fear of something bad happening. So the only reason that we have faith is because we fear that if we don't, something bad will happen, right? Just so you know, and the Bible is clear on this, God does not operate in fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So it's a bad definition. And so first of all, we have to understand when it comes to faith and these definitions we've been given is, first, faith doesn't mean you won't doubt. It, this, this idea that it's complete confidence or trust in something, you may have confidence and trust in something, okay, but there's still doubts, right, Okay. It's not blind faith either, you know, this idea of blind faith. I mean, to be honest, when I hear people talk about blind faith, I mean, to me, that just sounds insane, right? That I'm just going to have faith in something without asking any questions, without doing any type of probing, without even asking anything. I'm just going to believe it. And I think not only do I think that's crazy, I think the Apostle Paul thinks that's crazy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, bless you, uh, there's this point where he's talking to these early Christians who are really wrestling with a lot of this stuff. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, here's what he says. And I love this. He says this, you are reasonable people, which means this, you have brains, use them, work through some of these things, think about some of these things. You are reason- Listen, the greatest gift that we've been given, and I believe this, is our minds. I mean, they're fascinating. So many different reasons for some people, but they're fascinating. <laughs> Decide for yourselves. Not what I say, not what the preacher on TV says, not what the latest book that you decide for yourself if what, and this is the Apostle Paul. He's telling the people, he's, he's writing the Bible, right? And he's telling them, you have to decide for yourself if what you think I'm saying is true. C.S. Lewis, who's one of the greatest minds we've had in the last two centuries, especially when it comes to faith and understanding, he says this, and this is important. I mean, he, he wrote some of the greatest books that you will ever read when it comes to faith. And if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, you should look into him. But here's what he says. I am not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of the evidence is against it. So he's saying, listen, I'm not asking you to believe something because I wrote about Aslan, right? Right? Okay, I'm not asking you to believe it because I can use words in a lofty way. He's saying if if at the end of the day, if your reasoning tells you something else, the other thing that leads to, though, is this idea that, that faith is without proof, that we don't have any proof behind our faith. Now, I often push people when it comes to this, and hopefully you'll understand where I'm going with this. Um, but here's my question to you. What do you actually have proof of, like just in life? Like, what do you actually believe and know that 100% you can actually prove, right? You remember the story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree? Remember that, right? You remember that story, never told a lie, so okay. 100% made up, just so you know. 
Now, you believe that. You were probably taught that in elementary school. No, no evidence that that story ever even happened. All right? No, that's a silly thing. How about this, okay? You guys like science? You guys know about black holes? You heard about black holes? All right. So black holes are this phenomenon. I'm a big science guy. There's this phenomenon out in outer space. I mean, I grew up, like, when I was big into science, I grew up terrified of black holes because I thought we were just going to be sucked into these things, right? I mean, and you watch, like, science fiction movies. You watch Star Trek. I don't watch Star Trek. Star Wars is way better. But um, so, you know, it's this weird thing. And, like, there's these phenomenon out there, and we're terrified of them. So it's based on Einstein's theory, okay? So it's, it's an old theory. Did you know we've never actually even seen a black hole? It's true. In 2019, there was an image that came across that what they think might be a black hole, but it's highly debated in science whether that was actually a black hole. So there's all of these theories, all of these things going on about black holes. And it's not that the black holes don't exist. They actually really do believe that they exist. We've just never seen one. I mean, now think about that. Like all of this stuff, and these are just two just brief examples. All of these things that we say we believe, but do you actually have proof? How about, how about this one? Uh, Nate Bergazzi is this funny comedian. He's got a lot of funny jokes, but he talks about this idea that if he went back in time, he'd actually do worse than he is now because they'd be like, well, who's the next president? And he'd be like, uh, you know, I mean, because who knows the presidents, but he's better at telling the joke. So it's funny. But, but here's the thing. How about cell phones? Can anybody in this room honestly explain cell phones? Right? No, <laughs> he's lying. So now here's the thing. What about, what about Wi-Fi? Did you think about, like, think about Wi-Fi. Think about this idea that images and words can be brought onto a screen, pixelated by millions of lights in a device in your pocket right now. Like, I mean, now I know they exist because we have them, but can you actually explain it? And the answer is no. So the reason I say all this is to say this. Listen, all I'm asking is this, when it comes to faith, if you're going to say, well, I can't believe in faith because I didn't see it. I can't believe in faith because I don't have all this proof. Just be willing to put everything else you believe under the same scrutiny and see where you land, right? And the other thing is this, is Christianity doesn't live in this blind faith world. We have the testimony, we have the accounts of men and women who experienced things along the way. We have men and women in this room and in the last service and watching online that could tell you stories, of things that happen in their life that there's no other explanation of other than something came in to their life and intervened in their situation and in their hearts and in their minds. The other thing is this, when it comes to faith, and and here's where the conversation is going to change, is this. I realize that when it comes to the Bible as a whole and faith as a whole as we teach, that it can be really confusing. I also acknowledge that guys like me, and maybe even me over the years, have not always done the best job explaining things. And it can be really confusing really fast. I also acknowledge that there's things in the Bible that we don't really understand, right? I I mean, there are things in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. I mean, there are things in in (laughs) Second Temple literature. Does anybody even know what that is? No, okay. It's a really important thing that not a lot of people understand, and it's really confusing, and it confuses people. I get all that. All I'm asking you to do when it comes to faith is to start at a point. Now, what is that point? Well, in Luke chapter 7, there's this fascinating story about Jesus, and he's traveling through Capernaum, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but you can look it up. And, and so there's this army officer, he's a centurion, so which means he's in charge of essentially 
Um, and, and they debate whether it was 100 men or 100 brigades of men, but he's a really important guy in the Roman army. He's a centurion. He's a higher-ranked soldier, um, but he's also Roman, which means he's probably not Jewish. And so he actually believes in a pantheon of gods, and there's different types of gods. And so anyway, he hears about Jesus, and he's got this servant that's really important to him, one of his right-hand men who's sick. And so he hears about Jesus. He hears what Jesus has been doing. Now, remember, he's a Roman person. He's not Jewish. He's not really sure where he lands in the world of faith and religion and all that stuff. But he hears about this story about Jesus. And so he calls, he sends a servant to go find Jesus and ask Jesus to come to his house to heal his servant, okay? And so Jesus is like, well, I'm not going to do that. Let me go to the house, all right, and then I'll heal him from there. And, and so they hear that Jesus is coming, and the centurion sends another servant out. He says, tell Jesus not to come to my house because I'm not even worthy for Jesus to be in my house. I've heard about what he's doing. I've heard about what he's done. I've understand who he thinks he is and who people say he is. He's not even worthy if he is that to be in my house. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus says, I tell you, this is the greatest faith I have found anywhere even in Israel. Now, here's what's fascinating about that line. Think about the people he's talking to when he says that. When he turns around and he says this, he's talking to the religious Pharisees and Sadducees. Their entire life has been being religious. Their entire life is made up of levels and degrees of faith. And he's talking to the 12 guys who have given up everything to follow him. And Jesus says that he is amazed. The word that he uses there is tamuzo, tamuzo, which is basically a Greek word. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus talks about how amazed he is at the disciples' lack of faith. So it's this really important word here. And here's what he says, greater than in all of Israel. Now, this is why this is important. When it comes to the measuring stick of religion, he doesn't hold a candle to these guys that Jesus is talking to. He's never been to synagogue. He's never been to schooling. He's not a disciple. He's not going to do miracles. He's not going to plant any churches. He has no seminary degrees. He has no religious titles. His spiritual resume was completely unimpressive, but Jesus says he has the greatest faith. Why? Because his faith is 100% focused on one object, and that object is Jesus. It's not about the degree. It's about the object. And all he knows is that he believes that Jesus is able to do something that only Jesus can do, and he trusts that. 100%, the greatest faith comes down to, Jesus acknowledges this, it's because of who his faith is in, not all of the other stuff we've added on. Second story takes place in John chapter 11. We've used this before. It's Mary and Martha. And, and so they are friends of Jesus. And actually, some people believe that Lazarus, their brother, is one of Jesus' like closest friends when he's here on earth. And Lazarus dies who's their brother. And so they're sad, which of course you'd be if your brother had died. And the other thing about this is they're really sad because Jesus is really close with them. So there's stories in the New Testament about where Jesus like leaves cities and like there's still people that are sick. He didn't heal everybody. He didn't treat everybody. But you would think in this moment that these are some of his closest friends. So if he's gonna, you know, throw one up for somebody, it's gonna be these guys, right? And so they get to this point where Lazarus dies. I mean, he, he's dead. And so they're upset. Mary's upset. Martha's upset. They accuse Jesus of you've been here and all of this stuff. That, that, that this wouldn't have happened. 
And so Jesus looks at him in this season of pain and grief and heartache. And here's what he says to him, because they're questioning him a little bit and who he is. And he says this in Matthew chapter, or in, this, in verse 25, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. So he makes a statement about who he is. And then he looks at Mary and Martha and he says this, he says in verse 26, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? This is the question that every single person has to ask. Do you believe this? It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what your parents believed. It doesn't matter what your grandparents believed. It doesn't matter what you've been told to believe. The question comes down to, do you believe Jesus? Is he the object of your faith that he is the resurrection and the life? I know there's a lot in the Bible. I know you've been taught a lot. I know you've been told a lot, but you have to start there. Last story, Luke chapter 17. The apostles, they're, they're getting confused about what's going on and they're, they're confused about what Jesus is doing, which is kind of their whole ministry. And in Luke chapter 17, verse five, the apostles said to, the, to Jesus, the Lord, he says this, give us more faith. The Lord said, if, you, if your faith were the size of a mustard seed, which is a little tiny seed, you, you could say to this mulberry tree, which is a great big tree, dig yourself up and plant yourself in the sea and it would obey you. And so Jesus says, listen, if you just have this tiny amount of faith, this teeny tiny amount of faith, and it sounds like for a second, Jesus is contradicting himself. Until you realize that what he's actually saying is this. Even if you have a tiny amount of faith, which is where some of us are at, but that faith is focused on the right object, which is him, even that tiny little bit of found of faith, as long as it's focused at the right object. Earlier he says that, listen, he says, if you have this small amount of faith, this tiny amount of faith, but it's at the right object, which is him, he says, you can go and tell this mountain to move and it would move. And so here's the question for us. Do you have any mountains you need moved? Do you have any relationship mountains you need moved? Do you have any mountains in your home, in your body? And here's essentially what Jesus is saying. So let's put all these stories together just so we're clear where we're going. He, he says this, with all these ideas, the centurion, it's like, hey, you, you're focused on me and only on me. That matters. Mary and Martha, they kind of forgot for a second where they should be focused on. He says, I'm the resurrection of life. Don't look anywhere else. Look at me. And then finally, he says, you want, you want faith? Okay, you see a little bit of faith, but it's got to be pointed in the right direction. Tim Keller says this. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. A small amount of faith is sufficient as long as it's focused at the right object, which is Jesus. And so who is God? Who is Jesus? The other thing that this is really important about is this, is we've talked about this before. Seasons change, our emotions change, our understanding changes. I mean, depending on what season I'm in, what books I've been reading, what podcast I've been listening to, even like parts of my faith change. The only thing that stays constant in my faith, though, is Jesus. This is what C.S. Lewis says. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason is once accepted. So you've thought through it, you figured it out, you believe this in spite of your changing moods. This is a really important statement because some of us in this room, let's be honest, our moods change a lot, right? Our emotions change a lot. 
And so the mistake would be to believe that our faith changes just because our emotions and our mood changes. The mistake would be that Jesus changes because we change, and that's not true. So why does this matter? Well, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And this is an important statement because when he says I'm the resurrection and life, what he's saying is he's actually painting a counter narrative. Because here's the thing is Jesus actually hasn't died yet. But what he's acknowledging is this, is that life is going to be hard. Last week, we looked at this verse that that Paul gives us. And essentially what he says is it's possible for everything on the outside to be falling apart and inwardly you're being renewed. To which many of us would say, well, that doesn't seem likely. Well, it doesn't because your emotions are always changing and so is your faith. But when you have faith that's centered on an object that does not change, then you can still continue to walk with Jesus even when the storms of life seem to be coming down on both sides. There's this great verse, because grief's gonna happen. And grief is this other thing that we go through. This year, um, I I talked about it earlier, not that I think all y'all pay attention all the time, but uh, my my cousin passed away. He's my first cousin. He was a great guy. We were close when we were kids, and I had to do his funeral this year. Tragically, passed away. And it was amazing because there's all this grief, there's all this sorrow, and, and people get up. And he was a really important figure in, in, in Bowling Green and, and just, um, just all this stuff and all these people. And so I got to preach the funeral. And there was this verse that I, you know, I got to preach through, and, and it was this idea. And it stuck out to me, and it still sticks out to me. And, and it's this verse that, that says that even though we grieve, which means we're going to grieve. I mean, there's not a person in this room we talked about before that couldn't get a phone call right now that would just change your whole world that even though we grieve, we do not grieve as those who don't have hope. Hope that this isn't the end. Hope that Jesus is greater than whatever we're going to face or are facing. And so it's like this idea that as long as our our faith is centered on the object, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of doubts. There's a lot of concerns. There's a lot of things out there that we got to wrestle through and work through. But as long as the object of our faith just stays centered what we believe is the story still being written. Then in moments of pain and fear and suffering, what we have to believe is because of Jesus, the last word has not been written. Death does not get the last word. Fear does not get the last word. Suffering does not get the last word. It's about the object. For example, does anybody have a cross? Anybody have a cross around their neck? Anybody? Can I see it? Do you trust me? Some people, a lot of people don't trust me. I'm going to make it disappear. <laughs> make it disappear? Yeah. We'll get you a new one if it doesn't come back. <laughs> so what's fascinating to me is that I'm sure some of you have crosses on your, your neck or jewelry, or this has become a popular thing, you know, for people to wear crosses. Um, what's fascinating when I say that is, as I assume somebody in this room had a cross, and some of you probably didn't, you just don't trust me, or you were embarrassed to raise your hand. So... Um, but here's the thing that's fascinating about a cross is if I had said, does anybody have those latest guillotine earrings, right? Or does anybody have that cool new electric chair charm, right? You would look at me like I'm crazy. But when I say, does anybody have a cross, like it's almost like we're looking around like, yeah, surely somebody has a cross. But see, what's fascinating is, is this was an image before it was an image, See, the original intention of the cross was it was the most effective way 
to kill people in a painful way and yet put them on display for people to see the pain that they're going through. It was an execution device. In fact, the word some of you have used, you ever use the word excruciating? It literally means in Latin, out of the cross, which means they created a word to talk about how painful, not only physically, but spiritually and mentally, the cross actually was. Now think about this. We have this image that we walk around with and we act like this is normal, that we're wearing a first century torture device, right? Around our necks. We have one on the stage, right? We got in trouble because we didn't have one for the first like eight years. And then finally somebody complained, so we put one up here. And there's nothing against the cross, but understand this. This was a tool of death. It was used to cause pain and suffering and to strike fear in the hearts of people who saw it. Mess with Rome and the world and the empires and the kings and the powers of this world, and this is what happens. And the first Christians insisted that when Jesus was crucified, And remember, when Jesus was crucified, he wasn't by himself. There were two others. They crucified people on such a regular basis. There's stories about the Roman Empire. They would line the streets of Rome for miles with crosses so that as people entered Rome, they knew not to mess with Rome. There's stories uh, of towns and villages lined with thousands of these, with men and women who opposed Roman views. But the first Christians, they believed that this wasn't just another execution. This was divine. That God was not somewhere else. He was not distant. But God incarnate was on the cross, suffering as we suffer, feeling pain as we feel pain. What is interesting is that for thousands of years, this has become a different symbol. Think about it. The symbol that was created to represent death and fear and pain is now the symbol that represents hope and life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? So the gospel writers tell us that something else is is going on, right? I mean, because you can't have resurrection without death. And and so he takes death and he puts it on display and a notice. And he he gives this kind of warning out there that everything is going to change. Do you know what most of us fear? And we don't talk about it because it's just taboo. We fear death. We do everything to stay alive. And I get it. Me too. But, but, but did you know that this represents this idea that Jesus is greater than even that? That we have nothing to fear because perfect love casts out fear. And so here, here's the question. I, I get that faith can be confusing and I get that it can be hard. But what is the object of your faith? And do you believe that through what Jesus did, that he's greater than whatever it is you're going to face? And do you believe that through the cross that he makes an 
a statement that Paul will write about in a few years, say we can put our faith and confidence and our hope in him because his grace and his strength is sufficient for us. Let's pray.